Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. My next guest on the Protect and Serve podcast is retired Metropolitan Police Commander Simon Foy, QPM. Simon graduated from university in 1982 with a law degree, but joined the Metropolitan Police Service under the National Graduate Entry Scheme. After initial operational uniform postings in West London, he became a senior investigating officer within the first generation of the Metropolitan Police's permanent specialist homicide investigation teams in 1995, starting a career-long interest in homicide investigation. Simon was later the operational commander in the demanding inner-city environment of Brixton and Lambeth, at a turbulent time for the force as it dealt with the challenging issues in the aftermath of the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. A posting running the private office of the then Commissioner Sir John Stevens for two years was followed by selection for the Strategic Command course in 2003, and in turn, promotion to the rank of commander. In 2007, Simon attained the posting he had sought for his entire career, namely the head of the Homicide and Serious Crime Command within the Specialist Crime Directorate. In this role, he oversaw the investigation of murder, serious sexual offences and child abuse right across the nation's capital. He also had national responsibility and leadership on behalf of the Association of Chief Police Officers for the role of family liaison officers within serious crime investigation. 
In this episode of Protect and Serve, Simon and I look back at what is an incredibly fascinating career right across London within the Metropolitan Police Service. All this and much more next on Protect and Serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And again, another week and another fantastic guest who's going to talk us through his life and times in the Met. And there are a number of people from personal experiences. The next guest actually I met when I was a very, very young man as a teenager at Gypsy Hill as a police cadet. And there are a number of people that inspire you to join policing. My next guest was one that who inspired me that potentially one day I could be the borough commander of Lambeth. My career and my life took me into a different direction into Australian policing. But I must admit, I'm absolutely honoured to have him on the show to talk about his career. Simon Foy, good morning. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Ollie. Nice to speak. Simon, we, like every episode, we like to start at the beginning of one's career and ask the question, why policing? Yeah, that's a that's a million dollar question, really, in some ways. I mean, I, I, I was sort of destined to be going into, I, I did a law degree at university and I hadn't really thought much about what I wanted to do beyond that. I realised quite quickly I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, and I think the moment for me, and I thank you for your very kind and flattering words about um, somebody inspiring you, but but when I was at school in the sixth form um, in Wales, a, a, a member of the local drug squad came along and just gave us a talk. And I remember thinking at the time, God, that sounds really interesting. And although it didn't register much at the time, it must have lain dormant. So as I switched away from thinking I'm not going to be a lawyer, somehow the the police just drifted into my head. That's the, the only way I can describe it. And this would have been around the sort of first or second year at university. And the more I thought about it, the more interested in it I became. And, and I saw it as a, at the time, I think I saw it as a really fascinating job. Um, mm. uh, no more than that. Very crude. And, you know, I applied for a number of different things when I was at university and 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 I I was joined under something a horrible label called the special course, which is a dreadful label for anybody. But it was a sort of fast track promotion scheme. It was a national scheme in those days, which was a scheme to attract graduates. And so in September 1982, sort of middle class boy, boarding school, public school, you know, university, no experience of life. I arrived on the steps initially of Hendon and then was promptly put on a bus and taken out to Wanstead because at the time the Met was doing a high level of recruiting. So they had an overflow. So I did my 16 weeks basic training, not at Hendon, but uh, at Wanstead, what was then what the Wanstead Cadet School. And what was that like? Talk us about, because, you know, we talk about in the podcast that Policing in itself is a is a very complex vocation in terms of the complexities of legislation and policy and procedure. You've you've come in with all this wealth of experience in terms of the de- the degree studies you'd undertaken. I'm yeah. going to make the assumption that the theoretical side of policing was relatively straightforward. You were accustomed to legislation, but was it as straightforward as you thought it was going to be? And were there practical elements you found challenging? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> there's two things. It's, it's, I think it's so fascinating, the debate we're going through at the moment about whether you know the vocational needs of policing are best served by a degree level entry. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a big argument or discussion in its own right. Mm. And I haven't really settled in my head which whether it's right or wrong. But <clears throat> my experience was that when I arrived as a, a graduate with a sort of graduate type thinking, um, 
what what I went through in my basic training was almost like a back to basics. So there was a lot of rote learning. There was a lot of there was a lot of do this this way because that's the a that's the right way to do it. And if you do this this way, you won't fall into any traps. I think was a polite way to describe it. There was a there was a more descriptive phrase that was used, um, and so it, it was a sort of prep it was for me it was a bit of an insight into what was coming but like all of these things my real education in policing terms arrived when i you know after my basic training arrived at shepherd's bush or foxtrot sierra one of the three divisions on the old f district and there was no street duties there was no sort of integration i literally arrived on the monday my relief had been late turn so i was late turn with them the next day and that was it you know i literally arrived in a parade room the brand new boy was plonked on a van and out i went and so my great adventure began so so there was <clears throat> there was some basis to it you know there were some things which we all remember stuck with us through the whole time you know you can still recite the points that you had to write down in an accident report book and all that sort of stuff but my real education began as we, you know, I began to operate in, you know, which it wasn't, it wasn't, it was a challenging area. The White City Estate at the time was not like it is now. Um, you know, there were some real complexities in the over, the, the you know, the crossover of my division into what was Notting Hill, uh, which is where Grenfell Towers is, uh, was. Mm. Um and of course, you know, we placed football regularly. We were sent on aid. And, you know, so my great adventure began about, um, you know, policing in a, 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 it was also pre-pace. So there was a, you know, the way things were done and the method was operated was 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 different. Um, and so off I went. And the, 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 the one thing I would say really is that I absolutely loved it. You know, I, I, I think my time at training school was a little bit, you know, I didn't quite know what was going on. So it wasn't particularly, you know, I didn't stand out. But I like to think that when I got onto, you know, relief and then, uh, you know, I, shortly I was taken under the tutelage of a, a really old, experienced uniform sergeant who had been sort of sent back under a bit of a cloud under something called Operation Countryman, where he was on one of the central squads. And he pretty quickly managed to get himself integrated onto a, a burglary squad. And I was one of his sort of pupils. And, and he tutored me hugely in that, you know, a wonderful old school investigative detective background, you know, the importance of paperwork, the importance of professional curiosity, the, you know, everything being put in a particular order. So my tutelage and pupillage in that time was hugely important and i think stood stayed with me for the rest of my my career when we joined the police obviously you know there's a lot of reaction from family and friends and, and associates and some of it's positive and some of it's negative you set out at university to read law what was yeah. your parents and family's broader reactions when you told them that you were going to pursue this career in policing yeah it's a, an interesting question I, they were a little bit surprised i think my parents my mum and stepdad were a little bit sort of taken aback because they I don't know, perhaps I had a certain expectation of something. It also helped immensely in so many ways that um, I had met um, in the second year at university the, the, the wonderful lady who is still my wife 40 plus years later and the mother wow. of our five children and three grandchildren. 
And she was a, at the time a, a nurse um, training at Great Ormond Street. And so we, we sort of became a couple. We got married in 1983, but we became a couple that was, um, uh, you know, she was doing her frontline nursing and I was doing my frontline policing. So her parents were GPs. So we sort of became the, 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 the couple that were doing, you know, the, the, the good thing, but a vocational thing. So, so I, there was no sense of disappointment. Um, it, it's, it's a real, it's a real, it's a real humbling experience to me that, you know, my family, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, you know, in latter years, I, I realized them having talked to them a bit about, because they used to say, I saw you on the telly or whatever. And when we've had a couple of drinks <laughs> together, my cousins will say to me, you know, we were really proud of what you did. Um, and that was really nice. Um, mm. Uh, so, so it, you know, in your question, no, there was no, there was no, there was a slight curiosity, but but absolutely complete support all around. You've, we're going to go on to talk about your latter part of your career working in, I suppose, what is arguably described as some of the challenging, more challenging boroughs in London. Um, but you know, as as young constables, we experience challenges in the early years upon graduation. We deal with conflict sometimes for the first time. We witness scenes of trauma. We witness death like probably nobody else witnesses it how did you overcome those challenges in your early years to overcome some of those emotional and physical challenges it's a really good question uh ollie because i i i like to think it's that's a dangerous thing to say but i like to think that in my latter years um the one thing that perhaps i did have some reputation for was being someone who cared about the people that worked for me um and part of that was to recognise some of the stresses and strains that they were under, um, and and yet when I when I look at, as you say, the you know the the sheer utter times brutality of what we were exposed to, um, you know there was no sense of how you're feeling after it. You know whether you'd been sent to pick up, uh, you know bits of a dead body, a, you know when a one two five. Uh, uh, taken some poor soul out that had committed suicide or you came across you know you had to sit on a scene with a, with a you know a, 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 somebody who committed a suicide in a property or you were faced with a normal share of blood guts and gore through to the you know the sheer sort of frightening nation a, a notion of you know people want to engage in physical conflict with you you know there's much talked about fights, fighting, physical violence, and all the rest of it. Um, and and so, so it just, it, I suppose, really, this may sound an odd thing to say, but because it was so new, it wasn't quite a, you know, it didn't have the same, you know, it didn't, it didn't take me, I didn't, it didn't bring any dreadful memories back for me. It was just something that was new. And as is a bizarre word in many ways, it was just sort of vaguely exciting. So, so, you know, it was having to deal with it. I, I, you know, I didn't, it sounds incredibly naive and perhaps it was, you know, I just didn't feel under threat. I almost felt invincible. I never felt I was physically at risk, even though I probably was and came, you know, had a fair share of bumps and bruises and what have you. Um, so, and and yet there was no, there was never any sense of, have you, how do you feel after that? You just, I suppose in those days, you just got on with it. Um, and I've never been an advocate of, 
you know, because that's how it was. That's how we used to do it. I, I think, you know, the way that the service particularly moved to try and actually help people deal with trauma that they may have experienced, I think was, it was you know, the sign of an organisation growing up and looking after its people. So I don't think it was a good thing. I just, I just, there was a series of coping mechanisms which just, you know, helped me get through it. And I suppose in some sort of way, helped me with, some of the stresses and strains and pressures that lay ahead. You know, we often talk about adrenaline. and I think adrenaline is probably one of those particular human reactions which gets us through those stressful situations and allows yeah. us to be able to to get yeah. through them. But but equally, back in the back in the eighties and nineties, you know, police canteens were were alive and kicking, and that's where a lot of conversations occurred amongst colleagues, where you could yeah. talk over these stressful incidents and almost have that kind of informal debrief to yeah. talk probably just get that that load off your shoulders and, and 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 vent it out so that people could give you kind of equal experiences to what they went through i would imagine that would have been quite a good support yeah. mechanism yeah absolutely the so-called frontline culture the the one thing i would say ollie that um you know i suppose and i'm just thinking of this aloud here that, that, that i i was blessed i think with her sort of ability to discern even quite early given my level of you know maturity and age and all the rest of it those who were worth listening to and those who weren't. Um, I have a great theory that, you know, you, whenever you come across someone in policing terms who has, you know, come off the rails, whether it's corruption or incompetence or whatever, you can usually put it back to some point when they, this is again a loose phrase, they fell in with the wrong people. Um yeah, and uh, you know, trust me, I had my fair share of wrongings around me, you know, in those days in Shepherd's Bush. Um, but I think I was smart enough to realize those folks whose opinion it was worth listening to and following. And I, I pray and aid again this sergeant who, on the face of it, should have been the worst possible person you could ever have as a role model. And yet what he was, was an incredible, I mean, you know, he was relentlessly ethical. He was relentlessly, you know, the importance of process, you know, getting it right first time, being being careful to finish things off, keeping an open mind. All those things came from this outwardly roguish individual who actually had incredibly high standards. And so... The ability to discern to follow him as opposed to someone else is, you know, perhaps I like to think it was, um, uh, you know, good choice. But actually, in reality, it was probably a bit of luck as well um, that, you know, you, you, I, I think I stood out to him as someone who had potential and he was happy enough to take me under his wing and uh, develop me as a, as a person. By, by, 19, by 1989, you were appointed a uniform inspector at Hounslow yeah. what were some of the leadership qualities that you took from others that you had experienced as leaders of your of you when you were coming through the ranks what was important to you as a leader in those early ranks in terms of now the staff that you were leading in Hounslow well it's interesting Ollie that the, the, you know reflect on my career there were three periods in my time where I think I was at my happiest in one sense but actually where I felt I was really sort of, you know, in the zone in terms of leadership. The first was that 18 months of running a, a shift or relief at Townsville. The second was the time as the divisional chief superintendent at Brixton, slightly 
before, just before I met you. And then the last was when actually I just had the homicide and serious crime come on as a, as a single unit before it got complicated by other experiences. Those three are consistent experiences. Um, and going back to the point about the relief, I mean, I remember the chief superintendent aptly named a guy called Alistair McLean, of all people, uh, who himself was quite a hard-nosed individual. He said, when I arrived, he said, I'm not giving you a relief immediately. I just want to see if you how you survive as a as an inspector. And then luckily, you know, four months in, he said, right, okay, I think I've seen enough. I'm going to give you a relief, but it's a difficult one. Um, in the sense that it was, you know, it had all sorts of issues. It had a couple of cops on it who were a bit rogue, you know, all this sort of stuff. So again, it was a sink or swim. <clears throat> but the thing that I... I the, the thing that happened, I think, was I I I, you know, I absolutely remembered you've just got to be yourself. Try not to be someone you're not. Try to make it very clear that, you know, there's certain things that are acceptable and there's certain things that are not. Um, encourage people to be professional, uh, to do their job well. Um, and also be around, um, you know, be available um uh you know do your do your job well do your job to the best ability and I, i'm i'm sitting looking at a book i was given or two books i was given um by um the father of a young constable who died on his way into work he worked at uh, heathrow airport he was on his way to work he died on our ground on camp of his motorbike and yes he was a you know police he was his dad you know he was a cop and his dad was uh, had been an ex-cop. But actually, I, 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 I saw it as my real duty and responsibility, because in those days, inspectors investigated uh, birth fatal accidents, to do the best possible job I could for him. Um, and he gave me, a, he was an author, and he gave me a little signed book. I was reading a letter the other day. And, and it, to me, it was a real thing. Is, you know, if you, if you do your job well, people will not only recognise what you've done, but will see you through, you know, a, a solid, good professional person. That applies to the public as much as it does to the individuals who work for you. So um, there was a bit of making it up as I went along, because clearly, you know, I wasn't the most experienced individual. But I like to think um, that there were some good people who worked for me on that shift that recognised that. And, and uh, you know, I, the other thing I think is really apt is, Finding those individuals within a team who are the opinion formers, and when they're on your side, it helps. I had one cop who stood out particularly, was very, very strong as an opinion former, and he was a good guy. And you know, I helped him get through a couple of difficult things, and he became an incredibly loyal and an incredibly strong supporter and foot soldier all through, you know. Our paths drifted apart, but we came back together at various times. I saw him at various occasions and all the rest of it. And I remember how important it was to have him on my side because it made a world of difference for the culture and the rest of the team. And actually, it made everybody feel a lot happier because the whole team was pulling in the same direction. It's been, you know, those early years operationally looking after, um, as you say, relief teams in, you know, in a response format was the more investigative work in terms of the detective capability within policing, something that you aspire to transition into? Absolutely, yeah. Um, back to those early days as a as a uniform PC on the 
playing close burglary squad in Shepherd's Bush, I'd always dabbled in and out. I was always, uh, you know, you talked about the fatal accident investigation, but, you know, there were, you know, we, we, had, we had a child protection team as it was on our, uh, in uh, in Hounslow or based at Feltham. And there was a couple of, you know, a couple of murder scenes. And, you know, I just, I just thought this is really, really interesting. Although I loved doing what I was doing, I was um, really keen to, I didn't know when, but at some point move into the investigative side. And I was constantly volunteering to do ex- extra bits and pieces. As it happened, the, the actual move across was a bit of a, I was a bit of an experiment, really. Uh, you know, a couple of postings had rolled on and I had a full expectation of going to a posting that, which was at Twickenham Division, as it was at the time. Um, and I literally was ready to go there on the, you know, the weekend. And I got a phone call from a commander, as at time, staff officer, and said, you're, you're, you're all all right going to Chiswick, which I hadn't heard of before. So nobody had bothered to tell me. And she said, no, 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 you're going as a DCI to, to Chiswick. So there was, you know, it was exactly what I wanted, but I had no idea it was going to happen. Um, and I think uh, there were three of us, quite well-known names. The three, we were an experiment. Myself, a chap called Hugh Ward, who became Sir Hugh Ward, Chief Counsel of Northern Ireland, and another um, guy who I, I came across <laughs> to my career called Brian Paddock, um, and so Brian and I were of a similar generation and uh, he, he, so the three of us were ported across to the, to the CID. We all had different experiences. Uh, mine was really just to completely realise this is where I wanted to be. Um, they all went on to perhaps greater things in rank terms than me. But, and, uh, and maybe that was what the difference was. But we were certainly the, the, the three pathfinders in the Met to single swim at that stage. So we talk about your move through the ranks. Between 93 to 96, you went from uh, chief inspector to detective uh, superintendent. What's yeah. the feeling like when, you know, I use the analogy, you're designated an SIO for a complex homicide investigation, almost like given the keys for the first time to a car and you've got to get it to the end of its destination, which in a murder terms is, is finding the offender, arresting them and putting them before the courts. What are the pressures and how do you start to manage those pressures from senior management? You've then got a, sometimes a lot of political and public pressure leading a big investigation and as the SIO, you're making some really big decisions. How did you, how did you learn those skills and execute them successfully? To a bit of context, uh, to the way when I assumed that particular role, and I think it's worth saying this because, um, I you know, I always used to make this clear to the SIOs that worked for me subsequently that I was the very first generation of SIOs that the Met had. So, uh, loosely, the, the way that murders used to get investigated was a you know, it would happen on a division, the local DI would be called out, the detective superintendent would turn up from Scotland Yard with his bag man. It was always a him and it was always a bag man, detective sergeant. They would sort of, you know, do a bit of um, rounding up people out of the local CID officers. The team would loosely form and off they'd go. Um, so there was very little permanent infrastructure around murder investigation. And the, the 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 five area crime a uh, ocu had a had its first time an area major investigation pool at Hammett. and 
So detective constables, and I lost a good few of my best detectives at, uh, at Chiswick at the time, were, were sort of taken into this central pool of people who were on a permanent investigative team. So A, that was the first time there was a permanent investigative structure. And what went with that as well was there was a first time there was a permanent cadre or cohort of SIOs. So we were new to the job. And in retrospect, we thought we were fantastic. We were pretty good under the circumstances. But actually, the you know, the role became so much more complex, so much more accountable, so much there was so much more uh, doctrine and training and responsibility about it. We were a little bit doing as we as we went with it. And there was a mix of, you know, my colleagues, SIOs in the, the five area crime, were, some of were really old experienced detectives, some were newer to the game like me. So we muddled through together. So um, that's a long way of saying that it 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 was, it, I think about it now, we were remarkably naive to the complexity of what we were being asked to do. And our, the accountability on us hadn't quite got to the level that it developed latterly. So I would never have, you know, although I was the SIO on a dozen murder inquiries, I would never claim to be, to you know, to have been as accountable as some of my colleagues in, you know, who I was responsible for in a later life. Um, so we did a lot of learning on the job. We did a lot of, um, you know, picking up as we went along. There was some degree of training. The training hadn't really began to grip and bite in the way that it had. Um, uh, so, so it it in some you know in some ways the parallel to you know getting on with it on a relief in Hounslow, although it's different, different, completely different type of um, environment and accountability. Um, you know, we were we we just managed the 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 blessing was that the folks, the DCs, the DSs, the members of police staff, the analysts, and what have you, that made up the teams were themselves volunteers and had been swept up in this sort of first round of recruiting, which had done a really good trawl of the talent and experience necessary. So in some ways, the SIOs were blessed by really good and competent staff, police officers, DCs, DSs and DIs that worked worked with you. Um, and, you know, frankly, that's no different to how it is now. Um, so we were, you know, I was lucky in that sense. The the the, the overriding sense I felt <clears throat> when there was nothing, it sounds awful to say this, it's, you know, because you're dealing with such a, a dreadful thing, but when, you know, the job broke and it was your job and you sat down for this first team meeting to, okay, what have we got here? You know, were they all over the place in terms of what was happening? Because we did cover, we covered Brixton. So, you know, we had a couple of, you know, shootings that that we that I picked up as the SIO, and um, you would think, wow, you know, this is a real, it's a combination of a who done it, but it's real. You know, they, I'm sitting here and and you look around, and you think, oh, actually, I'm in charge too. You know, so so it's a real thrill of thrill of it, real excitement, um, real fascination, uh, particularly that first moment because you realise you were doing something pretty fundamental and pretty important i want to talk about your period between 97 and um early 2000 when you were the borough commander at lambeth um which is the borough where our paths first crossed when we were both a lot more younger than we are today yeah if you can for our viewers outside of the uk could you just just explain the complexities 
of Lambeth and Brixton um, as an area and the challenges for policing uh, that that existed back when you were borough commander and equally they exist uh, today. Yeah, it's it's interesting the the history of that particular part of London. Um, what Brixton, so the, you know the borough of Lambeth is a sort of sprawling borough from you know the River Thames. It sprawls down as far south as you know the bottom end of Streatham and Gypsy Hill. Um, you know, it was a part of London that had. And, you know, I'll, I'll make some big stereotypes here, but, you know, with the, it had always had a slightly sort of, it had been a very prosperous Victorian area, and then it had been not so prosperous. It's close to the centre, and it attracted, um, like a lot of these sort of inner city areas, it attracted different different times and different spaces, um, immigrant, uh, you know, communities. And, and you know, with the, with the whole Windrush generation, which was a, a surge of people who were brought to the UK from different parts of the Caribbean and what was then the colonies out there to provide a sort of source of labour. Um, that community, the the black community that had initially, you know, just slightly before the Windrush had arrived in, in Brixton. And although there were, you know, then black communities, and you know, I never quite understood what that term meant, but it's a loose label. So that black community started... Um, to you know spread to other parts but for one reason or another brixton remained a sort of heartland or a, a community that was most in touch with the roots of this you know the black community that that arrived sort of through the sort of 60s and into the 70s yeah. um you know it was bedeviled by its fair share of poverty um in the when there was a spate of riots across the UK in the in the sort of late seventies, early eighties, um, you know, you you look at this in history and and Brixton and places like Toxteth and Mossside in Manchester was where you know there was a bit of you know we we we're not we're not prepared to be policed in this way anymore, and it was the first time that the way that policing was being delivered. In a slightly robust and old-fashioned, you know, semi-effective sort of way, was just proving increasingly acceptable to a group of people who were, you know, felt longest long enough established in the country to say, you know, this is not on. And so, I I think I'm correct. There's no part of mainland UK that has had as many sort of riots and insurrections as that particular part in the middle of the. Of, of Lambeth, it also mm. had an interesting political history in that it 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 developed a really really radical sort of socialist left wing type political leadership, um, which became vociferously anti police on one hand, but it was seen as the you know the last surviving bastion against you know the arrival of Margaret Thatcher and the and the Conservative government, and so it created a really toxic. Um, reactionary political environment on the one hand with some degree of poverty and you know and you know you know all sorts of deprivation issues with this you know the symbolism of it being a frontline political place with a with a you know a regular recurrence of, of riots and disturbances and so it was a, a real hotbed of um activity it was also at the time on whatever score you took it by, it had the most crime, you know, per square mile in 
any part of the whole of the United Kingdom, and in that I include uh, Northern Ireland. Um, you know, I remember our little two square miles because it was originally just where I only had the bit in the middle. You know, we had in one year we had something like twenty murders. We had uh, you know two hundred plus allegations of rape. We were getting twelve or fifteen allegations of street crime a day. We were on the highest level of burglary reporting in the whole of London. And then we had this extraordinary statistic that um, just under two and a half percent of the national national population of registered sex offenders. So two and a half percent of the whole of the country lived within half a mile of the police station at Brixton. So, you know, you just put all that together and it was just a incredibly challenging, complex, you know, the ma- events just came across you with you know, rapidity and pace. But go back to my theme, you know, there's this naive sort of, you know, hey, this looks fun type of person. There was a degree of that because it was just such an exciting, dynamic place to work. Um, and, you know, there were some other things going on. There was a piece of legislation called the Crime and Disorder Act, which actually certainly turned a slightly awkward, difficult uh, local authority. By law, they turned into our partner. I, I, I partnered up professionally with a lady called Heather Rabatz, who was at the time the chief executive of Lambeth Council, who was herself wrestling with a, a snake of trying to get this incredibly difficult local authority moving in some sort of coherent direction and we became strong professional partners in in our joint struggle together so there was lots and lots going on but it was just brilliant place to work this podcast is brought to you by the public safety foundation the public safety foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the uk the safest place to live work and raise a family This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Now, it's back to the episode. We talk about um, 1999, which was a fairly significant year in Brixton history because it was the period of when uh we had uh, the explosion of uh, commonly referred to as the nail bomber uh who yeah. is planting devices in different parts of london and, and attacking different cohorts of communities you featured on a netflix documentary about this investigation and about the challenges whilst you're in charge at lambeth it was a beautiful morning everybody was everywhere all of a sudden police walked over i went that's a bomb did you think of the consequences? It was my destiny. It was just complete shock and helplessness. This was like a war scene. Detectives fear the bomb could be the start of a terror campaign. I thought it was a racist thing. Was it a group of people? Was it one person? There was lots of speculation. And then... The second weekend running in the capital, ethnic communities have once again been targeted. This strikes at the heart of the Bengali community. We will defeat the people who are responsible for these bombs. Can you talk us through that particular incident and what it meant for you as the commander? Yeah. Uh, Remind me, Oli, when I finish my little narrative here, to come back to the Netflix documentary, (laughs) I feel a need to say something about that. But but let me... um, 
so so just you know this is where sort of Lawrence the legacy of Lawrence McPherson meets uh, what happened you know the label of institutional racism had arrived and I would have to say that the Met was definitely on the back foot you know our numbers incredibly had dropped just below 25,000 um, we were you know we, we had a lot upon us and we were trying you know, were some really inspirational people trying to get the Met to turn its turn its face and turn around commissioner had been hounded out of office Paul Condon um, and we we're very much on the back foot. And so um, yeah, what what then happened was you had this sort of completely out of the blue. You had this guy who uh, turned out to be a bit of a you know, loner, um, you know, extremist, strange guy, planted a nail bomb in the centre of a packed uh Brixton Town Centre on a Saturday. A device packed with nails exploded in a street market in Brixton, injuring nearly 40 people, including two children. Police today were maintaining a high profile in Brixton, asking anyone who may have been in the area on Saturday if they saw anything suspicious. In particular, they've been talking to market traders who were there when the bomb went off. Well, we normally close six o'clock, but it happened before six, yeah, isn't so it? You, you were here when that happened? Yeah, I was there, standing right. where you use. Um, it went off. A uh, few people were injured. Two cops were quite seriously injured. One of whom still got a, apparently got a scar across the front of his head as he got out of his car to approach the thing when it went off, and the nail sort of wow. luckily grazed his head rather than got stuck in it. Um, uh, so, so you know, it, it, it and so this this attack happened. Now it's it's re it's really interesting to sort of think about what else it might be at the time i mean there's a whole load of stuff that was going on at the time there was an extreme we were in a surge of what was called yardy stroke operation trident violence there was a war going on in eastern europe where you know there was a big uh, <coughs> eastern european community in uh, in, in lambeth and brixton there was uh, there, you know, there was, there was some indication that a couple of our sort of local ne'er-do-wells were at a state of, you know, wanting to take pops at each other. Um, so there was a whole load of stuff going on, which conventionally you would have said at the time, you know, we don't class the classic way until you actually knew what the cause was, was not to say anything about it. Um, and because it was a bomb, uh, colleagues uh, from the SO, forget whether they called then they were an SO something and it might have been SO 13 counter-terrorist command you know arrived to deal with it um and I remember saying to the SO at the time I said Maureen Boyle who'd not long been promoted into the to the rank I said you know you've arrived to investigate this offense in this community well let me just give you another piece of context here about what the expectation will be not just that you solve it and find who did it but what you say about what who you think is responsible for it and bless her heart maureen you know was not from the school of gen sort of come across this sort of stuff before she'd come through the old school route into ter terrorism investigation from northern ireland and what have you and so i remember her saying well you know are you sure i can't really say that sort of stuff and i said maureen you have just got to say right from the beginning that you think it's racially motivated and said, well, I can't, I don't know it is. I said, no, 
The difference is we've now got this label that if somebody thinks it is, then it is. And I'm a lot of people, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, are saying in this, you know, you know, from a range of political people to just chattering on the street, um, were saying, oh, you know, this was an attack on us as a black community. That's why it was planted there. It's obvious. And in retrospect, it was obvious. But, you know, being investigators, we wanted to make sure that we didn't say anything unless we were certain of it. And and and, and there was that wonderful moment, bless her heart, where Maureen said, OK, all right, I'll go with it. And we went to a series of public meetings where we set the tone right at the beginning to say, we think this is a racist attack. Um, uh, the the the, 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 you know, the history is this guy then went on to plant a, another bomb in uh, the Brick Lane, which was a sort of well-known sort of Asian community in the East End. And then the following week, he planted it in a gay pub in uh, in Soho, where that in that in that one, somebody really uh, sad, two people sadly died. So it was a, so if you like week by week, he was just going around these minority communities, planting these nail bombs. Now, the investigation into it is itself a whole story, but you could imagine there was madness in the press. There was lots of people suggesting all sorts of reasons. There was a couple of lunatics that came out and said that, you know, this was some sort of right-wing conspiracy. But genuinely, the people investigating it had no real sense of this, you know, any link to anything else. And he was captured in the end by a sort of grainy CCTV image. Yeah, I was going to say it was, it was the CCTV image that came out yeah. was incredible because hours and hours of CCTV footage was trawled to come across this one little yeah. image which yeah. somebody recognised him from. Yeah, it's. I mean, the, the actual story is that somebody at the front counter at Brixton Police Station on the night had enough nous about them when somebody came in and said, "Oh, I think I found this bag," um, and you could imagine. Well, you know, it was chaos, absolute chaos that night. So I remember the public wandering into the front counter of the station, which, which in, you know, was a busy old place anyway. It was full of, it was, a, it was a real slice of life place. Said, I think I found this bag. You know, normally you just think, yeah, great, thanks. But that person was sufficiently, did their job, you know, sufficient, sufficiently, the basics extremely well to make sure it was properly forensicated. It was properly, there was an indication of where it is. And then, in a couple of hours' time, there was a sort of, okay, this bag might have been in the vicinity of where this bomb went off. So that gave them the simple clue of who to look for in this morass of material, which was, you know, the 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 clarity of the imagery. This was the first generation of CCTV. So it was really difficult to look through it. So the, the painstaking work, A, to settle on, what you know, who this individual was, and then... I remember being shown the very early version of the grainy image and the debate was, you know, how do we get it enhanced sufficiently to enable us to get it to the point that somebody might recognise? That was the first thing. And they literally went all over the world to do it. And then, you know, there's a wonderful sort of learning point in this. They took it to everybody, NASA, the FBI, the CIA, everybody else. And actually it was our own lab back in Lambeth in for the wow. place. That actually did it in the end. We got the, you know, that beat everybody to it. And then the second, having got this image, what do you do with it? At what point do you show it to the public? At what point do you just rely on our in-house? You know, somebody might recognise this person. Um, 
from, you know, how long can we give ourselves to show it to our intelligence community, our cops, our frontline cops, to see, do you recognise that? So we allowed ourselves two, three hours to do that first before it went out in the public. And then obviously when it went out to the public, it, it, this guy was, you know, recognised pretty quickly. Um, and they arrived at his house probably just an hour or two too late because I think he'd been spooked by it and had gone off to... Uh, to uh, carry out the, the third attack. So, I mean, it, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting story in itself. Um, but I'll go back to where I started. It was the first time that the Met had stepped up to the plate around a racist serial nail bomber attacking minority communities. And the fact that we solved it in, you know, just under two weeks when you know, it had taken our colleagues in Paris virtually a year to try and actually track down someone who was of a similar ilk. Uh, you know, the Met responded fantastically to this. It, it gave us sort of everybody a cause again to try and unite around and feel like we we're all on the same side. So it was really, really, really important for the for the Met that it that it actually got through this. You know, a it did its job. B, it showed a little bit that it had, you know, understood some of the feedback that had been given in in recent weeks around, you know, institutional racism. And and this guy was was captured. I mean, the tragedy is, you know, that you know, there was probably, if you look at it in a cold clay light of day, there was a slight opportunity perhaps to have got him before the third attack happened. And I only say that in slight um it's one of those things you could speculate either way. But, you know, one way or the other, it was actually solved pretty quickly. Um, and this guy was exposed for what he was, which was a sort of loner acting on his own, on his own, on his own, in his own volition. We, you know, we spoke about just whilst I was asking that question, you know, fast forwarding at your time outside the police to being um, on the, the Netflix documentary. What okay. was that experience like? When the Netflix thing came up, um, you know, they, they said, we're going to do this thing about the nail bomber. Would you be interested to talk to us? And I said, yeah, I'd, li I'd like an opportunity just to explain in a bit more detail what I've just said to you, you know, where, yeah. where the Met stood at the time. The disappointing thing about that, and I, I kicked myself for possibly not seeing this happen, um, was that, I don't know if you watched the documentary, but I, but I, you know, as I pointed out in a very angry email to them afterwards, I said, you know, so you wheeled in some sort of lunatic who said he was, you know, at the heart of all this, you know, and he knew about Copeland and he knew about this and he knew about the other and all this was linked up. And, you know, utter, you know, excuse my French bollocks, absolute nonsense. Um, and yet you had both Maureen and I, and Maureen more so than me, who were actually explaining what, what it was like, you know, what, 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 what we did know and what we didn't know. And yet, for some curious reason, you've chosen to turn the documentary into, to leave it so that, you know, this guy who is probably nothing to do with it seems to be the knowledgeable one, you know, who's explaining what should or shouldn't have been done. And the two people that were actually at the heart of it that actually knew the facts at the time, you've sort of turned into, well, they're a bit par players. And, I, and I, you know, it's a lesson learned. I, I, I feel a bit disappointed that it, it didn't actually make the point that should have been made 
that that actually at the time it was a pretty amazing piece of police work. Two thousand one, you moved on to be the staff officer to the commissioner John Stevens. <laughs> yeah. What are the challenges that come with being the staff officer to the chap that's empowered to run the entire organisation? Yeah. No. I mean, it, uh, where, uh, where to start with that? First, first and foremost, um, and uh, you know, there may be one or two Met officers that are listening to this that will actually recognise um, John Stevens for what he was. He is the most. He's. Uh, I hope he doesn't listen to this, but he's the most remarkable human being in so many ways. Um, you know, he was the one that you know, I talked about the Met being on its peels. Well. You know, John Stevens, come off the hour, come off the man. So this incredibly charismatic, um, slightly, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, really, really, uh, you know, difficult person in, in some ways, but absolutely the right man, you know, working as, you know, I, I, I genuinely was one of his, you know, trusted small trusted team around him and you know he put me through a couple of tests which I came through and then he said you're all right because he knew I was interested in just you know working and supporting him as an individual so to be around him and see him doing this was was quite an amazing experience I mean you know he's a he's a he's a he's a he's a he's a, he's a lovable rogue in so many ways who I have so much time for and you know it's, it's, an, it's an odd it's an odd expression for two roughly tufty cops but you know I had so much love and respect for what he did and how he is, even though he could be completely and utterly impossible at times and really difficult to deal with, um, but showed great loyalty to me. You know, he would do the charismatic things like, you know, I would be sort of literally exhausted by working relentlessly for this guy. You know, my family would barely see me and all the rest of it. And then on those occasions when he did see my family, he was absolute charm personified. And they all my kids all say, Oh, it's well, Sir John, it's a marvelous, great, isn't it great? And my, you know, my wife was totally, you know, charmed by him and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, he could he could absolutely be the most charming person. He could also be quite difficult, but he was absolutely the right guy for the job. And we went on a bit of an adventure. And my job was just to mind his back during the time that he was, you know, doing his stuff which was great. Um, it, it was the, probably the hardest I've ever worked in my service. It was literally an all-consuming existence. I had no other existence other than supporting and working to him. So, you know, his diary was my diary. His work schedule was my work schedule, except that I had to be in before him and leave after him. Um, wherever he went in the world, I went. Again, sounds glamorous and exciting. It was to a certain extent. But when we got abroad, he was, you know, it was hard work because it was only me to and actually keep the whole thing on the road as he strutted about like you know on the world stage um but yeah remarkable remarkable guy whom i have huge respect and 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 genuine genuine respect and love for and you recalled a story off air um about you know i think there's a couple of places that we all know there's a couple of places in history where we all know where we were at the time they occurred yeah. and i think two of the most significant events for me personally uh, is September 11th and actually the, the the death of Princess Diana and both of which I think we all generally know where we were at those times because of such yeah. big events. 9-11, yeah. you were with uh, Lord Stevens yeah. at that time yeah. and I think I you were, you were ab aboard an aircraft. We were. We were flying to a conference in New York um, and uh, we were on the British Airways flying 
you know, happily minding our own business, just settling down, having, you know, because it was hard to travel with because it was always, you know, what you watching on the TV, he'd switch over, he'd switch your channel, he'd try some of this wine, you know, that type of stuff. It's constantly like, you know, like I, the analogy used to be like a small kid on a plane. Um, so, we, but we sort of settled down to that point where we know, okay, he's, you know, he's, he's, I think he'd fallen asleep. And the purser came to us and said, are you Sir John Stevens? And he said, yes, I am. And he, she said, the captain would like to speak to you. Again, classic John Stevens, and I know exactly why he did this, and it's absolutely the right thing to do. He said to me, you go and talk to him. You go and find out what it is. You know, this this, this survivalist instinct of, you know, put someone else in a position to make a bit of a judgment reference point before you actually have to get exposed to, mm. you know, doing something. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful skill and leadership. So off I went and the captain said there'd been this attack and the plane had turned around and all the rest of it. Um, <clears throat> and um, so I went back to uh, John Stevens and said, this is what's happened. We then both went to the flight deck. So we were listening to uh, it develop, uh, bizarrely, on Radio 4. That's the only thing they could get uh, from a, you know up, up, up at that height because by then the plane had turned around because they'd shut all airspace on, on new york and as we came into london if you remember they weren't letting planes land either no. and so our captain said right i'm going to try this so he said i've got the commissioner of the met on board he needs to get back can i have clearance and we literally got that magical clearance they let us through um all these planes circling and we landed in um heathrow he was literally collected off the plane and we were scattered back to london Ireland, go home for about four or five days after that and he, um, so and and so the first time I saw the events happen were on TV that night because we hadn't seen it happen live. We hadn't seen it when we were in the air. We'd only experienced it um, when it had, uh, you know, when it had actually happened. But we were we were en route. Had we gone the day before, I think where we were going to be was quite near um, the wow. Twin Towers. So uh, you know, it's one of those things. You know, it's, that's how it was. Um, but, it, but but that you know from then it it uh, the, I think I said before you know the world was never the same again. Do you think uh, looking back on that period in time, there was a lot of people writing and talking about the increased threat of terrorism on the world, and sadly nine eleven struck. Were, were was the UK and was policing and more generally, do you think we were behind the eight ball in terms of the threat of terrorism? I the the. Uh, AXO, Assistant Commissioner of Specialist Operations at the time, a guy called Sir David Vaness. Um, you know, urbane, sophisticated, uh, very, very experienced, absolutely saw what was happening as clear as a bell. Um, and I think J.S. John Stevens was with him to a certain extent because he could see this I can't remember the exact history, but, you know, there was a series of attacks in, I think there was an attack in Kenya. There was an attack on an American warship. You know, there were a whole series of things going. There was a sort of, a, there was a, a sort of developing sort of uh, the, the notion of the suicide bomber was, you know, the Israelis were dealing with the Sri Lankans, the Russians, ironically. You know, they were all dealing with this sort of phenomenon, which was the sort of, 
fundamentalist Islamic threat and some new boldness. So they were attacking American warships and American sort of uh, diplomatic buildings. And then uh, the, 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 the whole issue of a suicide bomber. Um, and, you know, I won't say we were asleep at the wheel, but, but I, I think that, you know, what thinking and preparation was still in the legacy of it's going to be a bit pyro-like, you know, it's going to be a bit, you know, there's going to be organised, it's going to be structured, we're going to be able to infiltrate it with intelligence, we're going to, we're going to have an opportunity to take some of these people out before they get to the point of, of um, uh, you know, carrying out their attacks. And, and, and we'll get some warning, so we'll be able to clear people out, you know, a bit, a bit sort of that. Whereas actually what, what, uh, what was upon us was a, a terrorist a terrorist um, movement, if that's the right word, which was quite prepared to cause mass casualties, yeah. but with little or no respect for their own lives either. Indeed, it was regarded as part of the martyrdom that you gave up your life to kill as many people as you could. And actually, what you know, nine eleven was the the visible representation of that, and. You know, all of a sudden, the world woke up. This is what this is about. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, I have to say that threat is still with us. Um, I don't know about it much, but I do. But I, you know, I don't think it's gone away. I think other forms of terrorism have, you know, come back into focus. You know, Irish republicanism, right wing extremists. You know, all that sort of stuff. It's all come out of focus, but there's still this other threat. You know, which hasn't suddenly given up and gone home. Um, so from that moment, that was a seminal moment, I think, in the history, certainly of the Met, but probably most significant in the world, really. You talked about three times in your career where leadership meant an awful lot to you. And one of those times was in 2007 when you took up the position at the Specialist Crime Directorate, um, Homo Homicide and Serious C Crime Command, yeah. um, overseeing a number of different uh, investigations complex. Can you tell us, you know, obviously you moved back into an area of great passion of yours, the investigative space. <laughs> Uh, and again, overseeing some some really challenging investigations, one of which was the review into the Madeleine McCann case. And um, obviously, that's that's a matter which is globally recognised and incredibly traumatic for Madeleine's parents and and society as a whole as the the disappearance of a young child. Tonight, Madeleine's parents, Jerry and Kate, are still waiting desperately for news. And with every hour that passes, the questions only grow, and the sense of dread mounts. They felt from the beginning this was a case of abduction. Day two of the new search for Madeleine McCann, and police were busy clearing a wooded area on the banks of the Arad Reservoir. Locals and holidaymakers alike joined the hunt. But 24 hours on, despite forensic efforts and a careful look for fingerprints that might point to a suspect, there appeared to be no clues and no obvious leads. And the sense of shock is immense. Words cannot describe the anguish and despair that we are feeling as the parents of our beautiful daughter, Madeline. We request that anyone who may have any information related to Madeline's disappearance, no matter how trivial, contact the Portuguese police and help us get her back safely. On the edge of this reservoir, 30 miles from the resort where Madeline McCann disappeared, there is now intense search activity.
but tell us more broadly if you can about that particular review and your time at the uh, homicide directorate you know this little girl goes missing in portugal the plug is pulled it becomes one of those incredibly complicated jobs that everybody's interested in um and the uk policing the only people in my view that had any sort of real locus around it was was leicestershire who had a, a role around family liaison which i i think was entirely correct um and then there was various help offered by you know odd different difficult bits of the met of uh, of policing in the in the uk to do you know various you know forensic uh, profiling and all the rest of it and you know, there's a whole separate narrative about how the Portuguese got slightly put on the back foot by this great big vortex of the British media meets a slightly confused who's actually in support here from UK law enforcement through to really incredible politics going on. Um, but the point of being reached that she'd been missing for a period of time and the family who, you know, have done some extraordinary things to try and actually keep the whole issue in the public domain for which they deserve huge credit and respect, you know, began another campaign about, you know, Madeline's been missing, I think it was about five years. We need to, you know, what, what's going on now? And, and then an intensely political decision was made by the then Prime Minister at the time, who said, I'll tell you what we'll do. I, I'm being slightly loose in my language here. I will, you know, we'll, we'll get the Met to review it. That sounds like a good solution. And um, the commissioner at the time, Sir Paul Stevenson, um, I remember him coming into my office and saying, you know, we, we've, been, we've had this thrust upon us. Um, what do you think? And I said, well, I, you know, from one of the little I know of it, I suspect, uh, you know, this thing didn't happen in a vacuum. Um, and probably if, if we had this type of inquiry, you know, in, in the UK, I suspect we would have deployed our investigative processes and techniques and we would have potentially got perhaps a bit further than um, than they have. Um, and, uh, you know, for, for a bunch of reasons, it was, you know, uh, Sir Paul thought, you know, the, the, the Met has to get involved in this. So we did. So we, th this was the beginning of something called an investigative review which is a curious thing in itself. Um, and I remember trying to explain this to uh, Mr. and Mrs. McCann to say, look, you know, we're not, we're not reinvestigating it because we can't, because the Portuguese, you know, it's not allowed to be investigated under Portuguese law. Um, but we will be, we will build what we hope is a constructive relationship with our colleagues in Portugal and talk them through the way that we might have done this and then see if we can help them to find a way through to get this whole thing reactivated. That's yeah. essentially all we did, um, you know, build. So to say to Mr. And Mrs. McCann, for instance, when she was, they were meeting me and, and Detective Tyson Turner, I said, look, you know, the best one in the world, you're not going to, we're, we're dull people. You don't, you, you don't, you're not going to arc into us all the time. I'm going to introduce you to the SIO who's sitting outside, who you will meet, who is your, who will be the person that you'll work with, and he in turn will introduce you to the family liaison officers who you'll see all the time, and that's who you'll see. But always remember that we are the Met. So all the other things that everybody else has done and said they can do for you, we can do ourselves. We don't have to get the help of anybody else to do anything we want. We are the one organisation that is capable 
you know, with great respect to the others of doing everything that they can, but we can do it in-house. So if we want to do it, we can do it. We don't have to faff around. And, and they appreciated that. And so, you know, we, we started the process off of just looking at the whole thing from our eyes and actually seeing if we had run it according, you know, had, had it been ours, then to have a sufficient relationship with the Portuguese and the Portuguese police in particular to, to, to not seem to be patronising, to not seem to be, um, you know, overpowering, to recognise it was, you know, we were just here and a sort of uneasy, you know, helpful friend on the side. And they took, it took a long time for them to build up our trust. Infuriatingly, that trust, you know, got invariably, and I say this with some caution, but, you know, invariably that, you know, people even above me just decided to, you know, that things were going too slowly and we needed to do this, that and the other, which is, in my experience, is never helpful when you're trying to build a relationship. But the fact that it's still going uh, along now and, you know, it seems to me 10 years out of it, so I have no knowledge than anybody else, but it looks to me, you know, if I put the perspective of I had when I did know something about it, um, it seems to me like it's moving to a point that we would have probably got to ourselves. And that's always very encouraging. So where it goes from here, I don't know. But it certainly was a, a really interesting, fascinating uh, saga. To and I have a very small walk-on part in, but nonetheless uh, enough to be, to be able to say a couple of things about it that go back to that point I was always making about, you know, when you talk about these things, they're never straightforward. They're always more complex that you've seen. And there are often people who are in the know, i.e. investigators, who know far more than any commentators. And I include that label as myself now. So that's why I would never really say anything too significant about it, because I don't know. Um, but it was certainly an interesting, an interesting way. And it came right at the back end of, of, of my career. And I sort of left with it unfinished. Um, but, you know, with, and I've watched it with some, some interest ever since. There are a number of challenges which have um, become flashpoints in British history in terms of antisocial behaviour within London, which has caused quite significant levels of um, disturbances. Uh, and towards the latter part of your career, 2011 was sadly one of those moments in our history, which uh, a flashpoint uh, in the the shooting of Mark Duggan by police as a result of an incident which occurred um, and the fallout from that in the borough of Tottenham led to quite significant instances of disturbances across London which then grew yeah. across the country. London's burning and no one seems able to bring it under control. As night fell, a huge blaze lit up and it spread quickly with no sign of police or firefighters in the vicinity. Neighbourhoods previously untouched by the rioting of the past three days are now joining an ever-growing list of unruly suburbs. What began as a peaceful protest quickly turned into civil unrest. Well, the partner of the man whose death triggered the weekend's riots has told Channel 4 News that the protests against his death have got out of control. When they burnt the place down, it was just over there. That's where the window was that was broken, where the first puff of smoke came out. You were still, you, although the latter part of your career was still very active in London in your role, 
uh, in 2011. What was your take on that for our viewers and those listening to the podcast who aren't aware of the issues which occurred in London in 2011? Can you talk us through some of the challenges the Met was facing? Yeah, I mean, I, I go back to history again. Uh, you know, the Met has always had a very well, if it, it just uh, separate out two things, separate out the management of critical incidents, which there was a shooting of a, you know, there was a shooting incident, which then sparked a bit of a disturbance in the community, which then sparked a bit of a sort of riot. That was a sort of normal, I hate to use that word, sequence of events, which the Met had geared itself to deal with. So, uh, you know, if you'd had a normal shooting community disturbance contained riot, then there was a whole series of things that needed to be done to investigate that riot. And it was the Homicide Command that had the responsibility to do that. So there was a definite linear relationship, which is how we as the command entered stage left when those things happened. The, the added complexity in terms of history is the method also always had a uh, I was never in public or the police used to watch with interest what they did and had a lot of time for the colleagues who who managed that world. But they were, we became quite good at doing sort of large scale uh, events. So if you had a public order event, the Met was really good at engaging and dealing with it, you know, both from a, you know, a history point of view, but usually some of these events and riots that happened they were usually, as a loose label, but big set piece events, which there was a real clear leadership structure about how to deal with it, A, and then there was, it was always a bit fuzzy, but there was at least a plan about how to investigate it, B, in the aftermath. Um, so you put those two things together. The, it, this is my opinion. It, the, the Met had had a couple of little warning shots in the uh, just in the immediately before that, where there have been some demonstrations, I think there was one by students, which had sort of culminated in a series of skirmishes. Um, so you didn't have a set, you know, a, 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 a demonstration which then ended up into a bit of a fight and it all got contained and dealt with. This was a demonstration which ended in a fight and then it fragmented into a series of skirmishes. And I remember thinking at the time that, ooh, that looks and feels a bit different. You know, how do you deploy resources to that? So that happened immediately before the shooting of Mark Duggan. But if you then revert back to the second line, Mark Duggan uh, was shot, uh, you know, while you're under surveillance. Essentially, in itself, it's a, a saga. But this guy was, this black guy was shot. That led to some unrest about, why he was shot, it all came to a head in a in a part of London called Tottenham, which had, you know, a bit like Brixton, it's got a bit of a sort of history around community expression. And, you know, this is so easy to say in retrospect now, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the cops, uniform cops at the time in Tottenham would probably say themselves that they were a bit flat-footed because they were slightly hesitant because there was, a, you know, there was a, the, the IPCC, the what they were then, you know, the independent police complaints uh, investigators were, you know, also just they got responsibility for this investigating the shooting. And there was a series of things that needed to be said back to Brixton nail bomber days, quite directly, quite, you know, 
you know, honestly, and the folks who were in Harringay Borough at the time were perfectly capable of doing that. That was their bread and butter. They knew exactly what they were doing. But in my view, they were, they had to hesitate a bit. Um, and before they knew it, um, the thing had developed out of control from a protest outside a police station into a riot. And on a, I think it was a Saturday night, there was a sort of full-scale petrol bombs, you know, bits on fire and all the rest of it. And again, it was the classic set-piece skirmish. So the Met was quite good at getting on top of that at that point. And enter us, Homicide Command, stage left, to investigate the riot. So everything seemed relatively okay up to then. Two things then happened. One, the sort of skirmish type event that, as I say, we'd caught a brief glimpse of by a couple of demonstrations in the months prior to this. Um, that that uh, took up that took up the, you know that 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 began to happen on the Monday, and it is also the first public disturbance which has been fueled by the messaging around social media. So it wasn't just what was reported on the mainstream media, but it was the chatter, which was significant, which was suddenly going on, on, I think in those days, it was like Blackberry Messenger. You know, it wasn't even the degree of, you know, um, social you know, media. Free, yeah, social media. It, it became, it became so suddenly what was an initial skirmish spread of virus like across the city. So it had lost its original cause, which was somewhere around a set-piece skirmish in, in Tottenham. And within hours, literally hours, a series of events were kicking off all over the city, literally all over the city. And there were these horrendous images of buildings burning. And this is going to sound really unkind, but the Met was a little bit flat-footed because it sort of hadn't come across this before uh in that it was you know how did it apply what was largely set piece thinking to dealing with skirmishes i mean they, they you know it, it didn't take long before they worked it all out and, and got a, a grip on it but this thing spread like a burning phenomenon across london and then more scarily across the rest you know into some of the other big cities um in the uk and i'm going to come back to the influence of the other big cities on, on our policing in a second but um it turned into a you know the, things were dealt with in in different ways in manchester west midlands you know they Manchester particularly they got on top of it before it had a chance to grow with some quite vigorous tactics uh you know which was all good stuff from from that point of view but but you know and the met could happily have done the same thing but by then it was too late because it'd gone too far and 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 it 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 literally, in some ways, burnt itself out as quickly as it started, um, and um, it, so we had this, you know, we had this phenomenon which spread over three or four days. What the hell happened there? The 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 whole public audit employment was sort of kept slowly catching up itself. Eventually, it got to the point to get on top of it. Um, I make no excuse about being disparaging about this. At this point, the politicians arrived and decided that they were going to do, you know, what they needed to do to make sure that they were showing that they got a grip of things. And there was a rather unfortunate thing that at the time the the commissioner of the Met had had left, 
Uh, and so this high profile riot with the organization a little bit all over the shop was being run with a literally in the middle of a commissioner selection process with if you add the mix of politicians trying to show what they could do to add value you know it all became a bit of a madhouse in some ways and i felt so sad for the, the acting commissioner at the time uh, time chap called tim godwin you could almost see that you know his his acting commissionership as he was then he was a candidate to become a commissioner was really being pulled apart by this event which completely unfairly he was seen as having little or no control of in the aftermath of these massive events and it was my contribution as the initial sio so to speak was that we had done things like you know we made great efforts to forensicate as many properties as we could we made great efforts to find out to retrieve and seize as much as the imagery that we could which and then turn it into what looked like the beginnings of a a, a bit of intelligence which you could then turn into evidence and second and then the third thing we did was just try and get some coherence in to you know the massive you know because people were being deployed all over the met to deal with um uh these events people were getting arrested the cps and the courts decided that they would happily collapse down to one central location so you had one central cps and you had one central courts but you had met officers doing paperwork which was all over the place so just trying to get all that stuff into some sort of order um against the backdrop of a desperate need by those in power probably above me to be seen to be doing something vigorous um it led to some real tension um because what we were trying to do was put a put in place what turned out to be a very sound investigative strategy rather than concentrating on the here and now the 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 interesting um sidekick on that is that twofold one is you know the met arrested charged and convicted many thousands uh, and secondly the, the the major incidents we had two unfortunate murders both of which were linked into uh uh the the riots in london both of which were investigated properly uh with you know with uh you know some quite we had to take some decisions you know with huge pressure on us to get results for these for the investigation but we kept our nerve and kept our professional practice so both were properly investigated and and uh, the right people charged and convicted was i think unkindly perhaps the the the, the same couldn't have been said to the murder investigation that happened in uh, uh birmingham which which turned into a bit of a nightmare for them for a whole range of reasons <laughs> you know that they, they they found it on the same place as we had in the past that they got drawn into a vortex that they didn't want to get drawn in and I, in my view it affected their investigative judgment a bit yeah. uh people may disagree with that but uh, so i don't think we did that in london um so i think although it was a bit of a madhouse and a bit of a circus i think we held i'm very proud of the fact that at some cost to me and some others we held our investigative nerve um and and did what we had to do the the sad thing about it is in all the the aftermath and the and the debriefing around it i don't think there was much there wasn't much listening for what we had done um it, all the emphasis was on making the sort of robust public order type response that little bit more flexible absolutely as it needed to be done 
but I, I still think it was a bit of a mis missed opportunity to because we learned some really hard lessons in that time um or i certainly did so it was an interesting time 2010 just rewinding the clock slightly you awarded the queen's police medal must have been an incredibly proud day for you um you're, do you look back over your career very fondly? Would you change anything if you were to go back and do it all again? Or would you would you follow the same path as you have done over the period that you've just talked us through? Yeah, I, I you know the QPN thing was, you know, yeah, it was a proud moment. Um, you know, it's a very privileged moment to to receive that recognition for I'm not quite sure what I'd like to think it was a legacy or a whole load of things. I think it's probably because of the family liaison stuff. Um because we've done some really developmental work in in family liaison, which actually had had, had actually upped the game around it as a as a profession. So I, I like to think it was for, for some of those things. Um, would I have um, done anything different? No, I don't think so, Ollie. I I I suppose the only thing you know that the the world is full of missed opportunities, really. Um, you know, I, I would I have would I have gone down a route of following the CID at a, at a much earlier rate and, and sort of given up on the fast track promotion type thing. I, I sometimes wonder how life might have been different. I wonder, I would have probably still joined the police, even if I hadn't got in on the fast track thing. I would have still joined the Met. So I wonder how my career would have, would have been, uh, you know, would have happened differently. Um, but I've, I've never, yeah, yeah. I, I remember feeling angry when the Met was, or there was a recent public inquiry which labelled the Met as institutionally corrupt, and I had a bit of a walk-on part in that public inquiry. It's a separate story altogether. And I remember feeling so angry at the time by, and I almost tapped out an email to the to the chairman of that inquiry. Uh, which I'd given evidence to, and I said, you know, look, I I made it, you know, I I did I did my best. I made some, you know, I made a lot of good decisions. I helped a lot of people. I did some good stuff. I also made some bad decisions. Um, you know, as perhaps I was a bit sloppy around some stuff. Uh, I made a couple of decisions when I was angry. I probably do one or two said one or two things perhaps to people I regret. You know, that's just human nature. That's how we did it. But overriding me, I. I sort of did the best I could, and I was very, very, very proud of the people that I worked for and worked for me subsequently, and I only wanted the best for them. Um, so, you know, I had that little, you know, that little core of myself, but I was never, ever, ever, once, ever, and I say that as many times as I can, corrupt. I never, I never, I was never corrupted by anybody. That I can say with my total hand on my heart i was never going across corruption but it never actually ever i never corrupted anything um so for you to label me institutionally corrupt i think it's really hard i didn't i didn't like that at all i had a couple i was lucky enough to to uh to do a couple of things where you know i had some talent and could display that talent um I had a great time. I really enjoyed myself. I worked with some amazing people. I like to think I developed and helped develop some incredible people. I put, you know, put a stop to some people who didn't need to be in the organisation. Um, but I, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed it and was and and did, you know, I, when I when I walked out the, the yard, you know, on the on that day back in September 2012, 
I thought, well, you know, I've sort of done my bit, really. Um, I, you know, I, I, I walked in as a sort of naive student and I, and I left, you know, a fairly satisfied professional that had done the most they possibly could. And it also gave me a great living. You know, it's, it's made me, it's given me an opportunity to do some interesting stuff after leaving the police. You know, it's enabled me to do a bit of traveling around the world professionally. It's given me, a, you know, good standard of living and all that sort of stuff. My kids have grown up in a happy, stable home. Um, you know, that point of view, it's given me everything. Um, the organ this organization. And, you know, I remain, still remain and say it as often as I can, hugely proud of it. Well, Simon Foy, uh, recipient of the QPM, it's been an absolute privilege and an honour to hear your story over the last 90 minutes of walking us through what is quite a remarkable career through some really, really challenging periods in UK's history of policing. And I think on behalf of my colleagues and I on the podcast, we thank you ever so much for your service. And equally, behind every successful police officer, be the male or female, is a, a husband, a wife and a family who support them and allow them to do the job they do so very well. So again, we extend our heartfelt thanks to your wife and family for the support they provided you through your period of policing. It would have been intense periods of um, no doubt stress and uh, supporting you and, and listening to some of the frustrations and challenges and successes and equally yeah. they should be celebrated for for that support so thank you ever so much That's for coming on the podcast and, and and we wish you ever so much the best um, for any future endeavors that you take up ollie thank you i've enjoyed it immensely just uh, always opportunity to walk down memory lane and uh think things through it's always you know you know, it's it's just fantastic to be able to do it um you know i hope it's not been too dull um, I hope, you know, there's a degree of poetic license in everything I say. I hope those folks that work with me sort of do recognise um, some of it if they listen to it. And, you know, it's just, the, uh, you know, it was, it was great to work with them uh, as well. So thank you, Ollie. Yeah, it's been fun. No. Thank you very much. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited